Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches, and mountains, and fly fishing, and sports, and reading, and more. And I also love getting under the covers of their authors to find out about their books and about their writing lives. Ordinarily, we'd release this episode on a Friday, but uh, Friday is Christmas, so we're releasing it on a Thursday. And what better author to do that with uh, in this particular season than Leighton Ford? Join us for an inspirational conversation. Hey, listeners, in today's episode, we visit with Leighton Ford, author of A Life of Listening, Discerning God's Voice, and Discovering Our Own. In this wonderful memoir, lifelong minister of the gospel, Leighton Ford, tells his story as a personal history of listening for God's voice. Beginning with his earliest memories, he recounts the different ways God has spoken to him and the different ways he has learned to listen. Through the joys of ministry, first as an international evangelist, often in partnership with Billy Graham, and later as a leader of the Lusane movement and a mentor of emerging leaders, Leighton remembers God's voice proclaiming, instructing, reassuring. Through the pain of deep loss, he remembers God's voice calling out to him, even in the deafening silence. What emerges is not just an account of a long and faithful life of Christian service, but a picture of the Christian life, the life of listening. What will it sound like, Leighton asks, when God speaks to you? Leighton, welcome to the show. Hey, Landis. Good morning. Yeah, so so we were doing a little prep here, and the prep involved uh, getting ready to record remotely, and part of that prep included headphones, and your headphones were falling out, and it just occurred to me, uh, you know, we're talking about a life of listening. Who knew it would be so difficult? <laughs> How about that? Yeah, the devil must have been at work in these, in these earbuds I got on. I have the wrong, I have the wrong size ears. It makes me question. I think I've read another new book, uh, Trying to Listen. Exactly. When your earpods don't work. <laughs> well, you just have, maybe you have big ears, big listening ears, and they weren't, you know, these headphones just couldn't accommodate uh, your listening capacity. How about that? Uh, I have pretty big ears, but I don't, that's the problem. <laughs> anyway, it's nice to see you this morning. Yeah, nice to see you as well. And, and congratulations uh, on this inspiring book. Thank you, Landis. Now, Leighton, you, I should say that though I haven't known you very long, my parents have known you for a long time, and they've spoken very highly of you. And having studied your work and read your book, I can I can understand where they're coming from. And and my dad, he'd be very happy that you and I were having this conversation. He passed away uh, two years ago, almost close to the day this is going to come out. 
But I want to start with your, you know, this idea, um, because it starts in the early part of your book, um, you know, a little bit about you and how you came to be, you know, the person that you are. For many years, Leighton, you communicated um, Christ around the globe. You spoke, you wrote, media outreach. You addressed millions of people in 37 countries on every continent. You served uh, from 1955 until 1985 as an associate evangelist and later vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Organization. And you were featured as the alternate speaker to Billy Graham on the Hour of Decision broadcast. And in 1985, you were selected as a clergyman of the year by Religious Heritage of America and Time Magazine singled you out as being among the most influential preachers of an active gospel. And I suppose one of the questions that occurred to me was, what was the hardest part and the most rewarding part of being a worldwide evangelist during that phase of your life? The hardest part was being away from home because <clears throat> I love my family. I uh, I grew up Landis, as the book describes, but with adopted parents who didn't get along very well together. And uh, so my marriage, our family is very important. So much as I had to travel around the world to 40 different countries, it was being away from home was always the hardest part. The most rewarding part was, uh, um, well, there, there were lots of them. It wasn't the size of the crowds or anything like that. It was individuals that I met, that I learned from, that perhaps I was able to impart something to them. And uh, I just, I, I found recently on, uh, on YouTube a photo of uh, Brisbane, Australia in 1959. <laughs> I couldn't believe it was there. Uh, I preached for a week in the Melton Tennis Courts where the Davis Cup was played, and it poured rain every night, uh, but everybody stayed. But uh, le years later, to get a letter from someone who was there in Australia at that time, we say how, how their life was touched and had a new purpose, new meaning. For me, that's the, the lasting effect in people's lives. When that comes from time to time, that's, uh, that's what matters. You know, we're going to talk about your journey today on the podcast, uh, but but since we we do authors and books and writing on the show, I'm just uh, I'm curious. Do you see your writing of books because this is not the only book you've written? You see it as an extension of your spoken word ministry? Yes, yes. Of course, the written word is very different in many ways than the spoken word, but it certainly has been the, the very first thing I ever wrote, apart from school papers was a little book, a booklet called Letters to a New Christian, which uh, I wrote way, way back in the 1950s when uh, I'd been speaking in England and they asked me to do this booklet, just a series of little talks of what it would mean in a very practical way to, uh, to try to follow Jesus in our lives. And since then, uh, my other books, some more professional, in recent years more personal, have, have certainly have been an extension of what's been in my heart ever since I was 14, 15 years old. Yeah, we're going to talk about the 14-year-old Leighton in a little bit here, but uh, current day, you describe your mission as being an artist of the soul and a friend on the journey. Talk about that. I was, uh, I became an artist, actually a, a visual artist late in life when I was in my 60s, Landis. And it happened to one summer I was on a uh, summertime leave, doing some reading and study, got bored reading, found a book on painting and decided to try it. And I became very interested in that. And the how many artists have, have said it's, it's learning to see, to see in a different way. 
So um, I think Jesus was an artist. In fact, uh, Van Gogh once said that Jesus was a greater artist than the artist because he painted people. Van, Vincent Van Gogh, before he ever was uh, known as an artist, was a missionary to the, the coal miners in, I think, the Flemish part of, of Belgium, Holland. And as he talked to the miners, he'd also uh, draw their rough space, uh, faces. Later, of course, he became, over that last decade of his life, world famous and always, always remembered. But he said that Christ was an artist. And I believe he was in the sense the way he saw people, not just as they were, but as they could be. So if I could reflect that a little bit in my life, I'd, I'd like to do it, to be an artist of the soul and a friend. Because um, people have asked me, what is an evangelist? And of course, well, there are many different pictures of an evangelist. Our neighbors across the street from here we've known for years. When they first moved in, they said, we heard there was an evangelist over there. We thought you had a big tent in the backyard. <laughs> um, but an evangelist is someone who tells the evangel the, the good news. So, uh, so for me, that's... Uh, I, I like I, the St. Paul once wrote in one of the translations of his letters, God has changed us from enemies into friends and given us the task of making others his friends also. So my work is, I describe as making friends for God, that we can be God's friends and do that by being friends to others. So it actually is a little bit lofty. <laughs> What's your mission <laughs> statement? Artist of the soul, friend on the journey. Uh, that, well, that's a little bit maybe of an exaggeration. I think mission statements are meant to be aspirational, so it's good to shoot for the stars, so to speak, when it comes to mission statements. Uh, and I love that you've become a painter uh, later in life. In fact, uh, there's a painting that uh, you did uh, of the St. John's the Baptist uh, Church in Valley Crucis, uh, right. which is where my wife and I go in the summer. It's interesting because we attend a Baptist church in, in Charlotte, but uh, we, when we go up there, we found this Episcopal church. I was raised Episcopalian, but it's the St. John's the Baptist Episcopal Mission Church. So we figured it has to be. <laughs> yeah, both there. <laughs> it has to be. I, it's just, it's a wonderful painting. And, and I know you've probably been there because you painted it. It's just a great little setting. I, I painted it several times. And uh, actually my most recent painting is one I did of that, uh, of that church way up at the end of the valley. Great view, isn't it? You can see all the way down Valley Crucis. And uh, with some friends, I was looking outside inside, and I took a picture through the windows. And when I developed the photo, it showed the trees inside the church and the pews in the woods. Fascinating. I don't quite know how it happened, a reflection of some sort. Yeah. But I thought, that's really good. God's church in the woods, his woods in his church, nature and Supernature together. It is, it is wonderful. And uh, you've got on your website uh, pictures of, of your work, graphics, and maybe with your permission, we'll drop the St. John's the Baptist Episcopal Church in our show notes here for this episode so people can see some of your wonderful, wonderful painting. Um, Be glad to. So let's do this. Um, we're going to get under the covers in just a moment. When we do that, uh, we're going we're gonna to do a little deeper dive into the book, uh, talk about uh, uh, what you were focusing on, but and, and have you do a little reading. So uh, listeners, uh, we'll be right back uh, under the covers uh, with Leighton Ford. First, I'd like to do a little shout out to one of our team members, Spellbound Public Relations and Hannah Turner. Uh, Hannah does a great job helping me with the uh, with our Tune In Tuesdays publication where we uh, provide a bi-weekly uh, 
set of goodies to folks who listen to the podcast and engage with us, uh, information about books and authors and what's coming. Uh, Hannah is the kind of publicist who brings such energy and excitement to the table that even the most self-conscious, introverted, I don't want to toot my own horn clients will find themselves excited about marketing. And she's provided smart, creative, and timely marketing ideas and actions for this podcast. Not to mention referring talented authors to the show as well. Uh, uh, Hannah's an, an initiator who is responsive, creative, easy to talk with, and, well, she makes marketing fun. So what else could you ask for in a publicist? Thanks, Hannah, for being a part of our team. That's SpellboundPublicRelations.com. And about that newsletter, if you sign up for our email list at our website, CharlotteReadersPodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, you may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm back here with uh, Leighton Ford. Leighton is the uh, author of A Life of Listening, Discerning God's Voice, and Discovering uh, our own. Um, and Leighton, before I have you do a little reading here from the book, uh, let's just talk about the title for a second, A Life of Listening, um, Discerning God's Voice and Discovering Our Own. There's several messages there. Um, you know, you're listening for God's voice, but you're also trying, as you say, to discover your own voice. And that was part of your journey uh, throughout your entire life, right? It was. And my the, the the main thought in the book that I wanted to express is that out of the many voices that we all hear, some of which shape us, some of which misshape us, as we as we listen for the, the greatest voice of all, the voice of the Lord, if we truly do, we will discover our own voice uniquely who God has called us to be. That's, that's right. The, that's what I I have lo- a lot of names, by the way, you probably picked up. My full name is Leighton Frederick Stannis McRae, Peter Morgan Mahaffey Ford. I don't think it says that in here. That's because I'm adopted, and I can come back to that. But uh, yeah, who, we'll who is Leighton Ford? Who is who is Landis Wade? Exactly. We'll come, we'll come back to that. And on the cover itself, I'm looking at the cover. They'll be able to see it in the show notes if they go to charlottereaderspodcast.com. But it looks like a country lane with uh, in the autumn time. You got the, the gold and the trees. But it's uh, it looks like the road. Uh, it's one of those roads where the grass is growing in the center because it doesn't get as much travel, perhaps. But it's kind of coming to the top of the hill, and maybe there's a question mark about what's over the hill, what's beyond the horizon. Very good question. It's not there, but it is a question. Yeah. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> You're the evangelist. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's I mean I think that's people are always searching. I think. Uh, for the answer to those kinds of questions, right? Uh, what does the future hold? Uh, you know, where where is my life taking me? Where should it take me? Um, okay, we're going to get back into some of that maybe later. But before we do, let's we got this little reading from. Uh, it's later in the book. The, the heading of this little section you're going to read is a fit to our calling. 
Okay, let, let me do that and maybe just preface it by saying the word, our word calling is the Greek kalos, K-A-L-O-S, which is the same word as beauty. So I think ultimately our calling is to reflect the beauty of God and hopefully the beauty of our own lives, even in the midst of a lot of ugliness that goes on. So anyway, I started out that section saying usually there'll be a fit to our true calling, a sense of rightness, and then this. I've worked as an evangelist, as a leader, as a developer of younger leaders. In each of these roles, when I see people connecting with the new and abundant life in Christ and finding for themselves life in all its fullness, it brings to me the deepest sense of joy and satisfaction. A conviction flowing from deep inside says, this is what I'm summoned for. If this is not the spirit bearing witness with my spirit, then I don't know what it is. For as Jesus said, out of the spirit flows rivers of living water. But it's more. The summons is not only to something we do, but is done to us and in us. Vocation is related to vocal, the voice. It has to do with what we do, but also what we're becoming. It's the finding and sounding of our own voice to know and sing the music of our soul. I think of Moses. We revere him as a lawgiver, as a leader, and he carried out those roles powerfully. But we also remember Moses as the one who went to the mountain, who saw God face to face, whose countenance, after he came down from the mountain, so shined that people could look him in the face. The law came through him, true. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul remembered when he wrote that Moses had to wear a veil to keep the people from gazing at the glory in his face. What does that have to do with our calling? All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord is through a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In all that happens, God is at work in us who are called according to his purpose to be conformed to the image of his Son. In all that we do, our purpose is to reflect the grace and glory of Christ. This, too, is our calling. As Gerard Manley Hopkins put it in his poem on Mary, we all, like her, have this one work to do, that all God's glory through. So it was with Moses. The end of Moses' wandering journey is fascinating. We have no record of how he died or where he was buried. Why? Why no information on where he was buried or how, except for old age, he died? Perhaps this mysterious ending for Moses' earthly existence offers a clue to our own calling. Whatever we do, life is always an unfinished symphony. We're never complete in this life. As we follow our present callings here, we are being prepared for our final calling there with God. In Paul's words to his Corinthian friends, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we, we will all be changed. Or as John wrote, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Or as Ruth Graham has inscribed on her memorial plaque at the Billy Graham Library, construction complete. Thanks for your patience. 
That's wonderful. You like that? I love that. I really do. I, I mean, you, you know, you're like you're, you're a guy. We must have tireless energy because uh, you know we won't get into your age or anything like that. But uh, you know, you, you you've been fortunate to be around on this earth a long time, and you're still at it. You're still working hard. And uh, just like uh, Ruth Graham said, you know, you know, construction complete. You know, finally after her many years of service. For you, um, do evangelists ever retire? Well, the word retirement is not in the Bible. Yeah. I think we keep on. We get, we get tired. But uh, why retire? Because the calling, it's whatever our calling is. You've been a lawyer. You're now a podcaster. I've been an evangelist, uh, a writer, a poet, an artist. Those are important things we do. But who we are is never complete, as I said. That's that's ongoing. So, uh Sure, I've pulled back some. I don't travel. Of course, during this time, it's difficult to travel anyway, but I don't travel as much as I do. But the desire that's still within me is something that came when I was 14 years old. And we can talk about that if you want to, that I just have to keep on sharing. Exactly. Uh, You have a chapter in your book. It's called Early Listening as a Young Boy in 1945. Uh, It's early in the book. Uh, You're listening for your life's purpose. You have been adopted as a child and you have a, a kind of a interesting relationship with your mother who uh as I read the book she was you know very uh I don't know if strident is the right word but purposeful in the way she got you to church and got you to you know evangelistic uh outings uh she sort of introduced you um but you were searching yourself so as a young boy in 1945 tell us that story if you would yeah, I have, well, I didn't know until I was 12 uh, that I was adopted, Landis. This was in Ontario, Canada. And uh, when I was 12, my adoptive mother, her name was Olive, uh, took me for a walk in a park on a fall day and told me I was adopted. And uh, I didn't know that. She said, we chose to have you. It made me feel very special in that way. But yes, she did have, uh, she did have, a, she was purposeful. Uh, she had, uh, by the way, I should have known I was adopted because when she told me I was six foot four and she was five foot eleven, so <laughs> the difference between us. But she, uh, she had wanted to be a missionary, but she she couldn't have done it. She wasn't suited for it. But I, I think she adopted me with the hope that she had a son that she could help to shape shape for the ministry. Uh, but she was also a difficult person. She was full of a lot of fears. I remember waking up and hearing my mother. Scream at my father in the middle of the night. She thought he'd stolen money from her, which he hadn't done. So she was, it's very interesting. She was the first voice. I can't remember actually her physical voice anymore, but her, her, her voice, her influence was the most powerful in those early years. She taught me to sit down and pray. She taught me to read the Bible. But uh, there was this other side to her, this very very fearful side. And when, uh, when I was 14, this is right after the end of World War II. She disappeared for months. She went away for four or five months to some other part of Canada. We didn't know where she was. Uh, and it was a lonely time. But, uh, you know, I had I had good friends. My father was there to take care of me. But that uh, that summer, I went, to a, I went to a youth camp. And I remember the speaker talked about how he prayed. He said, when I pray, I don't kneel down. I had... Don't stand up. I walk. Now that huh, you can pray and get your exercise. Then he said, I pray out loud so my thoughts don't wander. And he said, I 
I take the Bible and read a verse from the Psalms and make that a prayer. And I can, uh, I, I remember, in fact, I have a friend just emailed me the other day who was there the same night that we heard that, that guy give that message. And the next morning I got up, took my Bible, went out in the woods. I thought it was a big woods, but I went back there not long ago when it's not, it's a little woods. But I remember walking up and down, a little bit embarrassed, hoping nobody would see me. And uh, opening up my Bible, had a big old black Bible, read some words from the Psalms. I don't know what they were, but I had a sense that God was caring for me, even in the midst of a, of a very difficult, turbulent family life, that he really cared, that he was present. And that gave me the, that was so real and personal to me. Now I'd grown up to going to church and Sunday school. That gave me a, a personal sense of a relationship, what it meant to be a friend of God. So that was for me. And that fall, we started a youth movement in our hometown to spread that word around. So that's how I got started. Yeah. And so uh, so the idea stuck and you stayed with it and you were connected early on to the uh, uh, to the Billy Graham organization because you went to watch uh, him preach uh, when you were young. And uh, I think you describe in the book, the you know, hearing uh, part of your listening You've got a section here listening to Billy Graham, and I think you described his voice as hearing the sound of thunder <laughs> coming from from the pulpit or wherever he was standing to deliver his message under a tent. And uh, and then as an adult, he became your mentor. And not only that, uh, you know, he, he he had a sister that you happened to uh, connect with, right? Happened to and stayed connected. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so, he, 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 uh, but yeah, another description of Billy's voice, he had that southern voice, the drawing, you know, prepare to meet thy God. <laughs> and uh, it was, I, I thought it was like a prairie whistle, a way out that you hear. So it was a strong voice, a memorable voice. I wish we still had his voice. But uh, yes, he came to speak for one of our rallies and encouraged me, even though the response was very little that night to his message. And uh, later told me about Wheaton College, which sounded interesting to me. So I went there. His sister came a, day, a, a year later. We met, fell in love, and uh, we will have been married 67 years before long. Yeah, that's great. So he introduces you to a college. He introduces you to a sister. Uh, he introduces you to the opportunity to participate in his organization. He, he, was, uh, he was a friend in a lot of ways, and, uh, but he was also, you know, his tenderness as well. I mean, you talk, everybody thinks of him standing out there with his Bible in his hand and, uh, that voice, that booming voice in that Southern drawl, you saw a side of him that some people didn't necessarily see. You even saw him at the end. You talked about in the book, uh, you know, his final voice, the final words that you listened to. We were up in his uh, house of Montreat in the little room where he spent much of his time in his later years. And Gene and I were sitting there and I said, Billy, when the time comes that uh, the Lord calls you home, how would you like to be remembered? And, uh, what would you like your sister to say about you? She spoke at your service. And he was very quiet because by that time he was quite deaf. His voice was not that strong voice. It was weak. And he thought a minute and he said, he tried to do what he thought he should. And I said, what was that? He said, preach the gospel. So for him, that's, that's what it was. And there were those tender moments. Uh, you're right. Uh, one of them occurred with our daughter, Debbie, when she was having a second bout with cancer. And she was down at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville to have some tests and uh, very, very, very fearsome. Walked down the dark hall to get a test. And there was her Uncle Billy in a wheelchair sitting there. He was there for some tests. She didn't know it. 
and she ran to him and uh, he put her arm, his arms around her. They cried together and he prayed for her. And I remember years later up at the house of Montreat, he was in bed, very weak. She was sitting holding his hand and she said, Uncle Billy, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best sermon you ever preached. It wasn't you up on a platform, it was you in a wheelchair and me in my time of need. So that's what I do remember. Both that strong voice that spoke to millions and that quiet voice that spoke to the one of the two. Well, Leighton, you're uh, very much uh, engaged. You're you're still you know doing what you do, but I I, I would I would throw this question at you too. Um, how would you like to be remembered? Maybe just in terms of that book uh, that I listened and I tried to follow Jesus, and that I tried to listen to others too. Not everybody can be speakers. But everybody can listen. As someone said, we have two ears and one mouth. And sometimes we use, use the mouth more than anything. But I think there, uh, we don't do much listening today, certainly in, in this time. Strident voices, angry voices, competing, debating, uh, sometimes vicious voices. What a difference it would make if we would really stop and listen to each other. So uh, maybe simply to say, uh, you listen. And and hope I hopefully maybe he listened and he loved, because that's where it's uh, that's what Jesus said. That's the most important thing, and that's that's something for me to do here at home. Jeannie and I now as we're as I said we've been married for nearly sixty seven years. Uh, she's not as strong as she was during this uh, the pandemic situation that we've gone through. Uh, we had a lot of time just to be together. For me, perhaps the most important thing as a husband is to really listen to her. Not just her words, but her her emotions, her feelings, what's going on inside her. We can all do that. Yeah, and I think historically, men have not been good listeners um, in general, and so I think men listening to women more and allowing space uh, uh, for them to speak first is important. And uh, I also think that maybe religion has gotten a bad rap sometimes over the years because uh, it was more about telling people than listening to people, and. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that or disagree with that, but uh, I think that uh, there's this idea of listening um, because our world is a divergent world, you know, and so if we can't listen and understand other people and their viewpoints, um, it's kind of hard to communicate with them. So, Leighton, how do we get people to listen to each other? I'm not sure I know. Maybe just by listening ourselves. Hmm. There's an old story about uh, a Russian nobleman who was living in Paris and went back to the court of the czars and uh, said to uh, wise men who's traveling with him, how do, how do I learn to, in the noise and all the social uh, interactions, the bubble that's going on, what do I do? How do I listen? The answer was just listen. Just listen. Just listen. Maybe. Pascal, the Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, once said, most of the trouble in our world is because we don't know how to sit still by ourselves in a room for an hour. And it, <laughs> it can be scarce. What would happen now for, how, how about if we had about 15 minutes of dead time right now? Yeah. Would, yeah, people if we, keep, would people keep listening? If we put our phones down and didn't answer the phone or go to the computer, just just sat silent, yeah, that would be difficult. Uh, hey, uh, 
Lane, before we go to uh, another section here, I want to talk about one final thing with Billy Graham. You were um, you worked with him for a long time, and and you made a switch. And we're going to talk about that switch in just a minute. But over the years, you were kind of uh, you know y'all were tagging each other in and out when it came to you know preaching. And there was this one one event. I think it was in Halifax. The reason I remember Halifax is we we went to Nova Scotia one time, and it was just a funny story about you preaching there. And Billy came early and was sitting in the back, and there was a man he tried to encourage to go forward. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I remember it very well. Billy doesn't remember it, but I do. I, I've asked him, but uh, yeah, it was outside on the, the big hill, Citadel Hill in the center of Halifax. And uh, I was preaching, and Billy was sitting at the back, and he was wearing dark glasses and a baseball cap, as he often did. And, and uh, because his eyes and hairs were recognizable, no one realized he was there. And he said he was sitting, listening, and praying while I was speaking. And at the end, when I gave the, what we used to call the altar call, there was some old fellow in front that started shifting around, looked like he was very nervous. And Billy thought, well, maybe the Lord's speaking to him. So I reached over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, sir, don't you want to go forward? Give your life to Christ tonight. He said, this old fellow turned around, looked at him, didn't recognize him, but he turned around, said, no, I says, I think I'll wait till the big gun comes tomorrow night. (laughs) That's great. That's great. All right, so you you were working with a big gun for years, and uh, and that was a, you, you talk about in the book how that was a rewarding experience, but you were looking for something else. And at the age of fifty, um, you made a switch, and 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 you know you went to your act three, and which has been going on for for some time. And you talk about listening to try to help you make that decision, um, because you had some choices. You you, you know you were sort of second in line, potentially, you could have stayed with the organization. But uh, I think you said in the book, uh, you didn't flesh it out too much, but uh, you said some on the Billy Graham team considered you to be a little too liberal. Um, I was just curious, what were you a little too liberal about? I had I had started my own crusades back in the 60s during the, the Vietnam Civil Rights uh, poverty, War on Poverty. Uh, speaking on uh, on the social implications of the gospel, that Christ calls us not just to personal hope and salvation. He does that. But the changed lives have to issue in a changed society. We need to be activists, whether it's in racism or par- seeking to help alleviate poverty. And uh, I have to say, some, maybe some of the people in the Graham organization thought that was a little bit too, uh, I don't know what they thought, not too radical, but certainly not not what I was called to do, but I, I feel it's the whole gospel for the whole world. So uh, there was probably some people who thought that, and I hadn't, you know, I gave a speech at a national conference and uh, along those lines, the church in a day of revolution. And after it was all over, Billy Graham got up, he was on the platform and said, amen. The next day, Paul Harvey, you remember Paul Harvey? I Radio did. Commentator. Yes who was a friend of Billy's, he got on this national radio program and said, Leighton Ford and Billy Graham have split, which we hadn't, but he thought that. So I sent him a copy of my talk, and uh, later he called and apologized. But I, I really, you know, we, we have had a division between the personal gospel and the social gospel, which I don't find in the Bible. It's the whole gospel for the whole person. So there may have been some questions there, but even more than that, at uh, I was approaching 50 years of age. I've been 30 years traveling the world with this message, hopefully seeing people find new hope. 
And uh, I just felt maybe there was something else that God had for us. I think that often happens to people at midlife, late 40s, early 50s. And uh, so my wife and I began to think and pray about that. What's, what might be next? And uh, we were praying and we we're reading the scripture to see are there parts of it that spoke to us. It was right. I met, I met my birth parents around that time, <clears throat> my biological mother and father, which is another interesting uh, opening of life. But uh, then we had a son who died, our older son, Sandy, who was a young uh, athlete and student. He was at the University of North Carolina. And an old heart problem came back, uh, an electrical problem of the heart called uh, WPW syndrome. He had to have surgery for it, and he did not survive it. That was the day after Thanksgiving, 1981. They will never forget. And out of that loss of Sandy, I think God put in my heart and my wife Jeannie's hearts the, uh, the call to help the next generation of young men and women to follow the Lord, not in my way, but in their way, what God had for them. So uh, we started uh, here in Charlotte back in the mid-80s, late in four ministries. And uh, I said, the purpose is to help these young men and women around the world to lead people to Jesus, like Jesus, and for Jesus. And that's, uh, it was during a time when the leadership was changing. So that's been my call since then is to help them hear God's call and to follow him and to mentor them. Yeah, you talked, uh, you wrote, a, you wrote an entire book on your son, Sandy, but you also addressed, uh, addressed it in the book here in the context of listening, because um, I think out of that uh, story, at least the parts you put in here, that he had a message for you. Um, as well, which uh, you found later? Was it in a journal or in a, something that he had written? Yeah, Sandy, uh, his uh, his final surgery was at Duke Medical Center, but he was at uh, Chapel Hill. And I went to his dorm room and found a poem that he'd been writing for me for my 50th birthday. I didn't know it. He never finished it. My birthday was just coming up or just passed. And uh, in that, he talked about the Old Testament story about the prophet Elijah, who uh, passed on his ministry to a younger man named Elisha. And uh, he said, well, maybe, Dad, this is maybe you'll pass this on to me. And uh, one of my friends said, maybe Kevin Sandy passed on to you, your ministry with this emerging generation. And I think that's true. I, I was called to help mentor those young leaders because uh, they deserved it, but also it was a very fulfilling for me. And now our, our youngest son, Kevin, has joined me in our ministry. So if the circle is not complete, at least it continues. That's great. And I want to I want to touch on one thing, and then I want to get to this idea of conflict uh, for a second. Uh, why do you think, uh, Leighton, that some Christians, and it's not just Christians, it could be some in different organ, uh, liter, uh, religious organizations, are so afraid of change, so afraid of this idea of social justice, equality, uh, whether it be for the sexes or sexual orientation or whatever it may be. What, what's From your perspective, you've watched this for years and you've tried to listen, so you've probably heard a lot. What do you think is going on and what, what's, what's, the, what's the treatment? Well, first of all, I think God has, has created us in a whole different spectrum from what you may call the the more liberal, the more conservative, to those who want to keep things and those who want to change things. Some people are more open and more closed, and we need both. We can't give up everything, and we can't keep everything the same. So um, I, th I think what's 
well, what's behind it, first of all, is we are, we are a self-centered race in many ways. There is sin. I remember during this election that has recently passed, I, I recall Bishop uh, Fulton Sheen spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington when Jimmy Carter was the president. And he opened speaking to this crowd of senators and congressmen and the Supreme Court. And Bishop Sheen said, President Carter, Mrs. Carter, and fellow sinners. <laughs> there was a long silence. And, and everybody laughed. They knew it was true. Yeah. But what is sin? Sin is the capital I, N, the big I, the big me. So uh, there is a disease called sin that uh, makes us want to keep for ourselves, not to open out. But the only answer to that is uh, is is the love of uh, the love of God. Jesus said, "These are the two great commandments: to love God with all our heart and our neighbor as ourselves." Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, there's something within us that probably all of us resists change to some extent. But uh, it's the love of Christ that dares us to reach out into the new things that he's always doing. It's the way it was for me. Jesus told the story of the people, the, the, the landowner who gave talents to his uh, employees. Some used it to grow, some hit it in the ground. So uh, we are so dominated by fear today. And I don't know what else can change that except the great sense. Well, I've seen through it in my life, the loss of a son, the loss of, of various kinds to realize that there is a God who has a hope and a fear and a plan for us and who loves us, each one of us. Uh, that is, that has to be ultimately the answer. So it's, uh, and in all of these areas, whether it's, uh, however we disdain someone else and look down on them, mm. we need to be, we need to, two things we need to know. God has made us, we're loved by him. and We all fall short. We all need grace. Uh, great words. It's, uh, so there is no I in team, but there is an I in sin. That's a good lesson for today. So, uh, uh, but let's talk about conflict just a second. Uh, you talked about learning and listening through conflict in your book. Uh, you heard criticism at some point. You had to listen, process. Uh, it was hard on you. That was part of some of the changes you made. Uh, I suppose when we open our ears and our listen, we're going to hear criticism of what we're doing. Um, talk about that uh, in your life and how um, you know, maybe maybe it's criticism from God. Maybe it's criticism from your own conscience. Maybe it's criticism externally from others. Uh, let's speak to that for just a second. Well, we none of us is perfect, so we we need voices from outside that will seek to us and make us really stop and look internally. Uh, for me, that uh, that came in various ways. Uh, I certainly know my wife, Jeannie, who's the purest person in the world. Uh, there were times when I failed her, and I needed to hear from her something that hurt if I was going to fix it. Uh, certainly, as I've said before, when you take a stand on some of these social issues, that's not popular, and uh, people misjudge. I think we just have to stop and say, well, if, but if this God has called me to do this, I have to listen to the criticism. I have to learn from it, but I also have to do what God has called me to do faithfully. And that just takes courage and true love will give us courage to, uh, to look, to learn from, and then to, uh, and then to act on God's call. Not easy, but, uh, but I ultimately gets back to the fact we are, we are creatures. None of us is perfect. We all have our frailty and our 
our narrowness, the things that need to be changed and grow in our lives. I know I do. I still do. But uh, there, and and we also, I think we only grow totally through pain, whether it's whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or relational pain. Oftentimes, it takes pain for us to face those things and uh, and say, yes, we do need to change. That's why, if, if we, you know, the uh, Gerald May, who is quite an outstanding psychiatrist, said that everybody he's dealt with in his in, in his practice has uh, has addictions. Said we're all addicted to something, whether it's substance abuse or sexual abuse or relational things. And he said, I found for myself not until I got to my knees could I find grace in my life. So, and I, I want I want a doctor who tell me if something's wrong, it's wrong, so we can do something about it. And we need spiritual leaders who just don't just give uh, panaceas and everything's fine, but who can speak as prophetically as the. I remember uh, when I I had an incident made me face up to the the racial situation, the racism in this country. When I was pre, I went to hear Billy Graham in a crusade in Alabama, Montgomery. They assigned me to a church on Sunday morning to preach. I didn't know the church, but I preached. And afterwards, I found that three black soldiers on their way to Vietnam had been turned away at the door because they were demonstrators, apparently. They weren't. They were there to worship. That was a pain to my heart. I had to feel that in order to begin to speak about it and do something about it. Painful, but, uh, but pain can also bring about real change. So, Leighton, you... Um... You've listened also over the years and probably heard about uh, and seen religious persecution. Um, you know, historically, Christ- Christians were persecuted, but also in the modern day, um, Christians sometimes persecute other uh, religions. Um, my own daughter, who grew up uh, uh, a Christian, um, she married a, a Jewish woman and she is converted to Judaism. And she's probably more religious now and knows more about the Bible now than she ever knew. Uh, when she was studying it. And uh, I just wonder how, you know, we as Christians uh, make the tent broad enough to accept people uh, no matter, you know, what their religious beliefs, um, because there is a historical Jesus too, who did a lot of good things as well. And I'd just be interested in your perspective on that. Uh, uh, coming from a family who is raised Christian, who, who has a daughter who's Jewish and, uh, you know, who has a lot of friends from different uh, religions. Uh, I'm sure you've come across this and interacted with people from all different faiths in the past. Uh, what do you say to that? I have to start with myself, with with uh, the story that Jesus told of the two men. Jesus told this, who went to the temple to pray, and one stood there, high and mighty, and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. <laughs> and the other person went and said he was a tax collector. And he went to the temple and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have to look at other people from the standpoint of, you know, I'm a sinner and uh, God has loved me. And and God's the judge. I'm not the judge. It's, I heard Billy Graham say one time, you know, you can't be in the judgment seat and the witness stand at the same time. So my job is not to judge. That's God's job. That's uh, I can. I, that mean that doesn't mean I want everybody to accept anything about me because I've got lots of faults. We all have to face our shortcomings. So, uh, I th- but I think grace is at the center of our Christian faith, and the great 
British writer C.S. Lewis once was walking through the halls at Oxford and they're having a conference. He said, what are they talking about? They said, oh, they're talking about what's unique about Christianity. He said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace. God who will forgive us in spite of who we are and not the that's that's the the loving grace of God. So, um, you know, I uh, we had a pastor, uh, interim pastor, some years ago, uh, whose son was uh, a gifted artist. He was gay. He was living in New York with his uh, his partner. He's a wonderful artist. He died with AIDS. Uh, when the pastor's wife was dying with ALS, that son was more able than any other children, my friend the pastor said, to show mercy and grace and love and kindness to her. And so I had, I wrote a poem about that one time, about that, about him, because uh, while I might not agree with his lifestyle, um, that didn't define him totally because there was a lot of beauty in that man's life. But when Billy Graham, I remember talking one time to uh, talk about other cultures, there was a Chinese graduate student uh, studying at Funan University who came to Charlotte with one of Billy Graham's daughters. We had lunch over Park Road, at the uh, little Park Road restaurant there. And she said, when Billy Graham came to China, he didn't come with a closed fist. He came with an open hand. And that's how I want, as an evangelist, I don't want to come with a closed fist. We all have sins nationally and personally that need that need forgiveness. But I want to do it with an open hand. That's how Jesus came. Yeah, and I think we're all made in God's image. image and, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, this is my personal belief. It's not a lifestyle. It's a, it's not a choice. It's, uh, you know, people are born uh and they they are who they are, and uh, I think part part of the message of the Christian faith is you know loving loving everyone, and uh, you've done that over your life with your ministry and your evangelism, and even to the point where, despite the fact you might have felt a little bit, uh, well, you didn't know why you had been put up for adoption, but you felt enough to go you know, look for and find your birth parents. And that was a part of your story in this book. And you found out that they were very much different from the adoptive parents who raised you. Um, So different to the point that uh, maybe you might even equip that you weren't sure you would have been an evangelist had you been raised uh, in their household. And I wonder, do you ever think about that? (laughs) If it had how your life might have gone differently um, had you not been adopted? Well, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, so I believe to some extent God ordains these things that happen. <laughs> and I think that's that's true in my case. Uh, yes, I have thought about that. Because I, when I was about 50, I watched Roots on television about the uh, descendants of, of uh, the people in Africa who were brought over here as slaves. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what my roots are. So as I, I went through a sort of a detective process and found out that my birth mother, who was the daughter of a Presbyterian pastor in Canada, she was uh, 16 when she got pregnant, 17 when she gave birth to me and gave me up for adoption. And when I was 50, I was able to find her. And uh, she had, uh, she'd later married, had three other sons, uh, but she lived a very lonely life. And uh, she was a churchgoer. 
And I remember in her little house north of Toronto, when I first went there, there was a candle on the floor of her bedroom standing in a pool of wax. And I said to her, uh, what's the candle for? She said, I burn it for purity. So I think all of her life she'd lived with the fact, the daughter of a pastor, that she had had a child out of wedlock, not, not married. And uh, I remember saying to her, what can I do for you? She said, well, you can talk about Jesus. And I know that. But on a cold winter's night, if you don't have someone to come and have a cup of tea with you and talk to you and love you, it's pretty sad. And I, all I could do at that point was just go and put my arms around her and hold her. She needed that. My father was very different. I met him, a big, tall man. He later married, uh, of course, had other sons. Uh, he was, uh, although he came from a somewhat religious background himself, he was probably a secular humanist or an atheist. Never said he just said, I'm not religious. But he came to, uh, to visit us. He came in to hear me preach. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, and, uh, and that family, it was very... That whole family in Canada was religiously mixed up. I had a half brother who was a Buddhist. I had this. I had a secular humanist father. I had a, a Baptist preacher. I had one of my family who was the greatest artist in Canada in the last century. So if I'd been in that family, who knows? So maybe it was good for me to wait till I was fifty because that opened up a whole new vista for me. Yeah, that's great. So let's do this in the little time we have left. Let's talk a little writing life. We do this in our shows on Charlotte's podcast. Uh, you're the author of the co-author of numerous books, including Transforming Leadership and The Attentive Life. And, and of course, the book about your son, Sandy, for whom your foundation was named. Um, so, Leighton, um, why do you write books? What stirs your soul about writing? Let me say, I have two other books, too. Okay, well, let's, let's name them. Uh, and these are my poetry and paintings. Okay. I have one called, uh, I'll, get, I'll get you a picture if you want to put that on and show it. Okay. It's called Wrangler, My Spiritual Director Dog. It's about my uh, my Australian cattle dog who ran into my car, sadly. Uh, so I have that one. And then I have another one called Places of the Heart, which are pa paintings and poetry and reflections across my life in different places, especially in these last uh, 30 years or so since I began to, to paint and do poetry more. My first books were uh, were more professionally oriented, I suppose. They were more about the ministry. The first one I was published was called The Christian Persuader. That's many years ago. And then I was asked to write a book on the leadership of Jesus, which I thought, wow, who can write that? But uh, it was needed. So uh, I studied Jesus' leadership style and wrote that. That book has been is still selling and, and is in graduate schools around the world, transforming leadership, a unique kind of leadership of Jesus. And then uh, the next one I wrote, because well, Sandy was very personal, the most personal book I've ever written. After uh, our son died, I, I really wrote it for healing. And I didn't know if anybody would read that except my family. But that has been widely read in uh, many parts of the world. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful for it and still, still thankful for him. And then the other one, uh, The Attentive Life, I, someone asked me, why are you writing that? I said, because I am so distracted in my mind. I've got a busy mind that goes a thousand different directions. And uh, Simone Weil, that great French uh, woman, thinker and writer, once said that prayer is absolute attention. 
And uh, we are in, uh, someone said we're in a state of continuous partial attention in the world today with all the devices and all the noise. So I realized I needed with a busy mind and a busy life to learn to stop and really and listen and pay attention. Then, of course, the one we're talking about today. Each has been a little bit different and each has grown out of personal convictions and needs in my own life. So uh, I have another one I'd like to write sometime about odd places and peculiar people. <laughs> odd places I have preached and peculiar, that is unique people I have met. That like Landis, a, like Landis Wade. That would be a fun, a fun book. I'd like to read that book. Uh, well, late, late night, writing process question, I, uh, because you, you, I haven't ever had an evangelist on my show who's also written books, so I get to ask this question. But, you know, a lot of evangelists will stand up and they can speak uh, without notes. They can just, you know, speak extemporaneously. And I don't know if that's how you did it in your younger years and whether that's the mark of a good evangelist. But, uh, you know, writing, uh, you're sitting down, you got your seat in the chair. Um, talk a little bit about how uh, being an evangelist helped your writing and and maybe how your writing helped your evangelism. Well, I uh, I did speak extemporaneously, but with full notes. I think uh, I think there's some quote evangelists who get up and you wonder if they've ever had two <laughs> thoughts that they put together in their life. Sorry, I, I don't mean to be overcritical. I wanted to be a thoughtful evangelist. Not that uh, we're all big brains because we're also emotions and physical beings. Uh, so I made th thorough notes. that, But I think any speaker, evangelist, preacher or not, who can do it, from the heart uh, can connect much more easily than from a written script. Although you have to, I've had, I remember speaking at the University of Washington years ago and the attorney general said that I couldn't, wouldn't be allowed to speak unless I let him bet my script ahead of time. He said, you can't try to convert anybody. <laughs> so I got up, it was a pack full. And I said, I can't convert you, but if you want to be converted, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> so, uh, but I had a full manuscript then. Uh, I would say that, um, there's a, there's a back and forth between the spoken word and the written word for me. Now, obviously, uh, you can't just put the can't dictate the written word and have be a literally good. That takes us that takes as painting does some special skills and time to work on it. But there's been a, a back and forth for me that my best writing I think has come out of uh, my work with people, out of my personal life. But it's, it also has come out of continued thinking, I think, uh, and thinking in new ways. I hope to be a lifelong learner, even where I am right now. Uh, but you're, you're quite right. It takes uh, some of my, uh, my thinking for writing will come walking. I don't know whether that's that way with you or not when you worked as it a is. lawyer. But it I've is. found that uh, someone, I have a young friend that talks about Salvatore Amulando, you solve anything by walking. So when I get to a difficult place to take a walk and think about it is very helpful. So for me, it's a mixture of what I speak before an audience, make it something would come to me when I'm speaking, but I haven't thought about before. Just, whoa, where did that come from? I got to capture that. And then, oh, I've got uh, my books that I have now. I have, I have files full of notes that I've made and accumulated from different sources and my own thoughts. So it's a matter of, of, the hard work of thinking through them. What do I want to say? What's the best way to say it? And having some good critics. You talked about criticism earlier. Uh, 
the uh, the books that I've had been most helpful to me are when I've had a good editor, or and sometimes once or twice a coach who would go through it and uh, say, you know, give me some direction. That's not good. Too much of that. I remember my, one of my editors said, "You got too many exclamation marks." So I always talk there about exclamation marks. <laughs> That's probably the preacher coming out. The preacher coming out in you, right? Yeah. You put the exclamation That's mark it. on. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Uh, okay. One one last question here. Um, you know, you've written all these books. Uh, you've you've had a storied life. You've had a lot of experiences. Um, and this is a writing life type question. Um, what would you tell your younger writing self? Something that would be valuable to that person. Uh, that would help them in their writing if if they had known what you know now about writing? I think it's just say, keep writing and someday it'll get better. I don't, th I, I don't think I could have absorbed when I was my first book at 26. I, I, I wouldn't be open to new ideas, but uh, to learn to write, uh, when I look back, I have a lot of quotes in those early books from other people. And maybe that's what I knew at that point. I didn't know my heart that well. Uh, to give an example, one of the people I mentor is a, a, a Chinese leader from Singapore, brilliant guy. He got his doctorate uh, at uh, Claremont under Peter Drucker, the great leadership uh, guru. His first paper that he turned in, Drucker wrote in the margin, which is he did this in little tiny letters, Mr. Chow, you know a great deal about leadership. You know absolutely nothing about yourself. So maybe to say sometimes, okay, with all that we learn about a subject, uh, how well do we know our own hearts? And I think that takes soul being open to one who is far greater and wiser than myself, which is God, who mediates through many sources. That's great, Leighton. Uh... It's been a wonderful hour. The book is A Life of Listening, Discerning God's Voice, and Discovering Our Own by uh, Leighton Ford. Uh, it's it's a memoir, but there are lots of great stories and anecdotes uh, in here as well. Leighton, this is, we're recording this, uh, ironically, the day before the election, and it's going to come out the day before Christmas. Some kind of contrast here, of course, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe some parting words here from you. Um, you know, today it's Christmas Eve when uh, people are listening uh, to this uh, episode. And, uh, you know, what would you like to tell people uh, at this time of year? Of course, you and I don't know how the election came out. We don't know what's happened in the in the two months since we recorded in, in December 24th. But uh, maybe this message is something that uh, is on your heart you'd like to share. Hadn't thought about it, but what comes to mind immediately is when Jesus was born, there was a king named Herod, there was an emperor named uh, Caesar, there was a governor named Pilate. We don't remember them much anymore. There was a baby who was born, whose name was Jesus. And maybe this Christmas, when all the noise of the fury of the election is passed and the questions about the future, uh, God does some things through a little babies and little things. As Mother Teresa once said, we can't do great things, but we can do small things with great love. That's what God did. And maybe the, what's going to happen next year for us is uh, some little moment when God speaks in the quiet. They're not the big personalities. 
Thank you so much for that, Leighton. Uh, it's been a wonderful episode for me to sit down with you and talk uh, with you about your book and your life. And uh, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thanks. Good to be with you, Landis. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written word. Landis will be back next Friday getting under the covers with another interesting author. But before then, coming on Tuesday, we'll have another long-form episode with readings and conversations about the written words and the writing life with a local or regional author. Landis loves helping authors give voice to their written words, but he can't do it alone. If you're inclined to help me help authors give voice to their written words, please consider becoming a member supporter. We'd love to have you as a member. And when you join at certain levels, we'll give you access to member-only content curated by the authors and me. Would you like to hear more from the authors? Perhaps a variety of presentations on writing craft, or additional readings, or tips on marketing and social media. Would you like some behind-the-scenes insights and reflections from me, or some edited content from previous episodes without interruptions. You can find out more about these member-only benefits and how to become a member supporter at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.